three, two, one. Welcome to today's episode of the Politipop Podcast, the podcast where we take your favorite pop culture media and discuss the social and political themes within. Today's episode is our third in our Class Warfare trilogy brought on by the hardships of the COVID-19 pandemic and quarantine, lockdown, shelter in place, whatever you want to call them. Today's episode is about the movie Snowpiercer. And reviewing this movie with me, delving into it, reading between the lines, is my... Favorite co-host, I'll say it, Ty. Welcome back. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm glad to be here. All right. Damn it. I didn't want to ask you how you were doing because... <laughs> because... <laughs> no, no one's doing good anymore. It's tough to have a good answer, you know what I mean? Um, but... Yeah, I want, I, want to, I want to see the guy who's like, I'm doing great. I'm having an amazing <laughs> time right now. Living my best life. Um, awesome. So, uh, so anyway, welcome back, Ty. I have three questions for you. We're going to get to know you a little better. First question is, what is the last movie you watched? Uh, <laughs> to completion? Or because I started Battle Angel Alita last night, but I fell asleep. <gasps> then tell me that one. How, how was the beginning? Uh, boring. I fell asleep <laughs> like 20 minutes <laughs> in. <laughs> All right. CGI is really weird. Is it? It, it looks very CGI weird. heavy. Yeah. A little bit. All right. So, so we'll wait until you finish it to determine if it's as good as uh, the manga or not. That's fair. All right. What is the last video game you played? Uh, After Party. What's that? Uh, basically, it's a game about two friends who have just graduated college. They're at a party, and they find out they're actually in hell. And they don't know how they died or what they did wrong, but they have to go through hell talking to different demons, figuring out how they got there and why. Uh, the dialogue is very clever and fun. It's it's uh, it's a weird game. You kind of do puzzles and you have different dialogue cho- choices, but it's very well written. Seems like something you would download on Steam. Maybe, yeah. I got it on what? Xbox Game Pass, so. Get out of here, really? It's an Xbox game. Yeah, it's on everything. Oh, that's pretty cool. All right, and last question. What is the last Facebook argument you had? <laughs> uh, the last Facebook argument I had was with a guy who uh commented that we are not folk we're not relying on immigrants um in agriculture because only about two percent of them are immigrants now to which i went to government uh, websites to prove him wrong and show that's actually very very inaccurate and his response was well then i guess we need to round them up oh okay then and that was it he had nothing to say about the fact he he was wrong that's it. He had nothing else to say. Even even with government websites breaking it down for him, he had he just that was his answer. So I definitely won that argument. It would have felt better if he was like, "Hey, maybe you're right. We are relying on on immigrants to help us right now more than ever." That that would have been the win. But uh, it, that's not what happened. He he obviously didn't care. Ugh. Well, you know, I'll tell you what I do care about. I care about today's movie. Uh, this is probably the movie that uh, that sparked this trilogy. Right? Definitely. Yeah, this is we had to do this one. 
Yeah, and we were leading up to Snowpiercer. We've been talking it up the entire time, and now now we're going to get into it. Uh, this was a 2014 film directed by Bong Joon-ho, who would later go on to direct uh, Parasite, which won Best Picture in 2019. Uh, that's correct, yeah. And I feel like this movie actually did really well critically, but not a lot of people saw it, which is a shame. That's exactly the case. So, Ty, without further ado, how about you take us into the plot? What is this movie about? Absolutely. Snowpiercer is about uh, a future where a failed climate change experiment has killed off all life except for the lucky few who boarded the Snowpiercer, a train that travels around the globe, a new class system emerges. We we find out pretty early on that within this class system, there's uh, the tail enders who are like the lowest of the low class. And then as you go further up the train, you get to the higher class people, the, you know, the haves as opposed to the have nots. Yeah, the 1%. Now, I have a question for you. In your opinion, is this Snowpiercer setup more fair than the setup of the hole in the platform? <sighs> that's that's a tough call. Um, in some regards, yes. I mean, uh, everyone's guaranteed food. So there's so there's that, but at the same time, I think the the platform is fair because everyone switches spots. So you get you know it gives everyone an opportunity to see what it's like to be at the front and to be at the bottom, uh, the top and the bottom. Whereas in Snowpiercer, if you're at the back, you're at the back and you're never leaving there for forever. Forever, that's your life. You're at you're at the back of the train. I know. I was thinking about that too. Honestly, I asked you the answer because I couldn't come up with a clear one either. <laughs> Yeah, because platform does give you a chance to live well, but it also gives you a chance to have absolutely nothing and die. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think the platform was all about, you know, trying to break that cycle and no one wanted to. Um, Snowpiercer, you don't even get a chance to break the cycle. You're just you're just stuck in it. You had no choice. So as we begin this movie, we find out, like you said, that there was a climate change experiment gone wrong, that they actually had to acknowledge climate change, which was nice because there are still so many people who don't in our real life. Uh, but we we see that their whole experiment was to cool down the ozone layer. But in doing so, they brought about the next ice age, hopped on this train and never looked back. Yeah, it's really interesting. They released like a chemical into the atmosphere to help uh, stop climate change. And uh it basically froze over the earth, created a new ice age, and everyone is dead except for whoever boarded this special train, this magic train here. And it's interesting how later on we find out that there is some of the snow outside uh, melting, that it's actually changing. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's basically the big uh, moment of the film, I guess, is finding out that the earth is, is starting to warm up again and the snow is melting, but nobody on the train believes this. Nobody thinks it's ever going to happen um, that you can survive out there again. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of now how in some ways the earth is healing itself, right? You see like all those uh, those we are the virus takes. <laughs> yeah, um. I mean, you, you can see like there's pictures of California where you can see the smog over it, you know, over L.A. And then you like right before the whole quarantine and then you look now and it's almost gone. Like you can see the city clearly. That is so wild. I mean, there are like fake articles going around, which of is course, really funny. Of course, like oh, like dolphins are returning uh, to to Venice, and uh, there's elephants in China that are getting drunk off of corn wine and passing out, <laughs> which National Geographic proved to not be true. But still, there are a lot of uh, benefits to the ozone layer right now to to, their, to our air quality. That pollution has dropped tremendously with just what a month of 
not as many people going out in their cars. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I, I feel like people always felt, um, even myself, it was kind of like a, a losing battle. Or there's no way we could save the Earth unless there was something completely crazy, like really see a chemical in the atmosphere. But it, it goes to show if we actually took the steps, maybe we could help the planet. It's so funny, too, how there's... Uh, it honestly isn't even that drastic of a move that we've taken in, in real life, right? Like, it's just been about a month of people yeah. not going out as much. And I mean, people are still go, people who work are still driving, you know, there's still yeah. cars on the road, but just cutting down on the amount. Um, you know, a lot of the factories aren't working. It, it's just, it's, it's really something amazing to see. And to see that it's happening so quick because there's the alter, uh, the alternate viewpoint. Usually I see people use the George Carlin argument. Uh, against climate change he has this whole set uh about like oh well you know the earth has been around for however many millions of years but you seem to think that a hundred years of industry is going to kill the earth that's ridiculous blah 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 and they keep using that and it's such an ass backwards argument too yeah it absolutely is i mean at the end of the day i'm sure the earth will survive but if they have to send us into i don't know an ice age to kill off all life then that that's what it'll do. So you know, it's more of a: Are we going to save our own species? But yeah, are we don't going seem to, to realize that exactly? Yeah, I mean, just nobody uses that with their own health, right? It's like, well, you know, I've been alive for sixty years. Uh, you can't tell me that one year of crack addiction isn't going to hurt. You know, <laughs> you can't tell me that one year of crack addiction is going to hurt my body that badly. <laughs> yeah, like that's the exact exactly. same thing, and yet. Right, right now, right, just a month of of people not going out as much has has reversed air pollution. Not reversed it, but dropped it dramatically. Absolutely, but you know, you're still going to have the deniers and the people who don't want to accept that. So, it's it's an impossible battle. Now, despite being made in 2014, this movie is oddly uh, prescient with the quarantine going on right now. That there's this moment where they send the soldiers into the back of the train to find artists. They're like, all right, up front, they want someone who plays violin. Because even no matter how well they're living up at the front of the train, they still need to escape the fact that they're on a train in the end of the world and they can't do anything else with their lives. So they, they need music. They need art. And that's something that's happening right now, too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, people have nothing to do at home, so what are they doing? They're watching movies, playing video games, reading, you know, just just going to the arts because it's all they have. Apparently, internet usage has gone up 70%, and streaming has gone up more than 12%. This was back in March, too. I can only imagine how much it's gone up since then. Uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. They were saying that Netflix was going to have to stop streaming in HD because of the strain on them. Get that out of they, here. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to actually, you know, provide HD streaming to everyone, so it's either like, you go back to standard definition or they're going to have to like shut off the service. So um, I don't know if they wound up doing that in America, but I know they were doing it in certain countries. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty wild. Just, just showing how many people are, are relying on these services. Wow. Uh, Amazon is, you know, another one that maybe not ent- entertainment wise, but Amazon's making a ton of money right now because people aren't going out to the stores. So like people are relying on these services more heavily than they ever have before. Another thing people turn to in this movie is uh, the drug Chronal, which they explain exactly what it is. Uh, so, yeah, so Chronal, you, like, scratch and sniff it, like a scratch and sniff sticker. It's it's pretty odd, but, it, yeah, it gives you hallucinations, um, and it seems like everyone in the front of the train, almost everybody seems to use it. 
Yeah, it seems to be happening a lot now too, right? Like essential businesses are keeping open. And apparently among those essential business are liquor stores. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I know a lot of people have just been uh, getting stoned like every day because there's really nothing else to do. Yeah, you're just trying to find something to pass the time and make it not so depressing. Yeah, and while uh, it hasn't been every day, I've definitely been been smoking and eating a lot more weed than I normally would. Yeah. Um, however, it has led me to be a lot more creative. So, <laughs> so hey, there you so, go. So that's that's interesting, and maybe it's something that that can speak to the narrative in the film that the people who are known as the chrono users, they're the ones who are kind of thinking way differently than the tail enders, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's like definitely a, a difference there. Yeah. Like Min Su's character. He's one of them. Um, speaking of Min Su, uh, let's talk about the cast real quick of this film because it is, it is um, so diverse. Yeah, it really is. Uh, there's, there's pretty much a, Every character is portrayed, you know, by by a different uh, race or, or type of person. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, we have uh, in the lead Curtis. Uh, we have Chris Evans, Captain America himself, uh, and then the guy who uh, you know is really good at the gates, uh, opening them on the train. Uh, Min Su, he's played by uh, Kang Ho Song, who we'll see later on in Parasite. Yeah, he yep. he plays the father of the poor family. Uh, we also see Ed Harris. We see I didn't know this was Tilda Swinton. Yeah, it was. She, she, uh, wow. <laughs> I know, she messed it. Swinton in her best, uh, Austin Powers cosplay. Yeah, she's pretty bizarre in it, but excellent. I know. Uh, she, she really is. And of course, Octavia Spencer. Uh, so there, there are a lot of different ethnicities represented in this movie, and it's directed by a Korean director. This film itself is in English, however. It's based on a Korean comic book, right? It's actually a French graphic novel, it turns out. Wow. So it's All a right. French graphic novel adapted to film by a Korean director starring American actors and Korean actors alike in which all of the heroes turn out to be white. So it kind of is. Uh, what well, <laughs> uh, would you American, say they're it's heroes? Not all the, it's not all the heroes. Or I would, I would disagree. I'd say all the villains are white. What about the protagonists? Are we saying heroes are protagonists? No, I'm, I'm, you're talking about Curtis, right? Yeah. Curtis is a bad person. What? All right, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait. So <laughs> as we keep going through this, uh, hold that viewpoint and prove I me will. wrong. All right. So, uh, so yeah, we do talk about the leader, who uh, Curtis. He's this, this you know, rugged, have a beard uh, dude that everybody looks up to in the back of the train. He's one of the tail enders. Yeah, in the beginning, he's very, you know, he's kind of charismatic. He's He's the one who always jumps in first. You know, he's the one that, that you know, is willing to, to step up when no one else will. Which which makes him a leader, which makes him someone people turn to. Even if he wants to be a leader or not, that doesn't matter. They're they're looking toward him. Yeah, he doesn't view himself as a leader, which I thought was great. You know, he it's always the people who don't want that that usually are the best at it. Yeah, he's um, the John Snowpiercer. Yeah, exactly. He's the John Snowpiercer. He, he, yeah, he definitely does not want it. But, you know, Edgar, the his, he's kind of like sidekick and everyone else is kind of like, oh, you're our leader. What do we do next? You know, what's the plan? And they always look to him for it. Now, things kind of get kicked off when the people from the front of the train, they send their guards uh, to get children from the back. And it seems to me that the children are the ones who really suffer in this world because on a, on a few levels, they have never known the world before the Snowpiercer. Yeah, this is this is the only life they've known. You know, uh, even 
you know, most of the characters, don't, they really don't have too many memories from beforehand, uh, unless you're like in your 30s or over. I think Curtis is 34 and, and you know, he remembers life beforehand, but yeah, most he was like don't. 17 years old when this happened. Yeah. When the, the world ended, pretty much. He was barely a man himself. And we see this in, in real life, which is interesting how the, there are older voters who just continually throw the younger generations under the bus. And it seems to be the case in Snowpiercer as well, that not only do they get the displeasure of not knowing the world beforehand, but uh, they, they're brought up to the front of the train for reasons we don't know. Yeah, obviously there there's something vital about them. They measure them, right? They have they have a tape measure, they're checking their arm length, their leg length, and you don't really understand why, and they're they're picking very specific children. Yeah, it's weird. And that's kind of what uh starts catalyzing the revolt that's going to take place, which is the whole plot point of the movie. Um, you know, they've been planning it for a little while, but when they start coming back and taking more kids and people start getting uh, rambunctious, uh, you know, this is kind of what what sparks that that flame that's going to carry the revolt. Uh, we see the guy throw a shoe at Mason, Tilda Swinton's character. When they take his son. Yeah. like You know, he wants his son back. So he, he throws a shoe and they punish him so severely for it. What do they do to him? Uh, they basically have these little like holes in the wall that they're able to open uh, in the train and he they stick his arm out there and they freeze it in the, in the ice in the snow and then they smash it uh, with a mallet and that is such a disproportionate response to him throwing a shoe at I know they should have taken his leg <laughs> why should they have taken his leg because it was a shoe no they shouldn't have done any of <laughs> if that if he threw a I mean, glove then they would have <laughs> yeah, exactly arm, right? exactly no but i mean it's it's just so brutal it's like you know how much damage could he really do with a shoe you know it's kind of like um uh you see in israel right when when protesters there throw rocks and stones and uh you know the army there they come out with guns and 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 brutally murder you know protesters it just seems so so one-sided and that's kind of how it feels here what a great point. That's not something I even thought of either because I was I was thinking just in terms of how uh how it might be related to what's going on in America, but you're absolutely right. That is what's happening in Israel, uh you know, when children on the Palestinian side are being sniped because they threw a rock. Yeah, it's it's just like how is this the right treatment, the fair equal treatment, the punishment? It it just doesn't seem fair at all. And when they're punishing him, the Mason, she shows that uh, the shoe is actually a sign of disorder. And um, it, it, it's just so backwards how she's like, this is a sign of violence and this is a sign of disorder. So we got to take the arm. You guys have to be fine where you are. And that's it. And this kind of reminded me of basically any protest in the United States before this last week right like we had yeah. the the black lives matter protest or or when antifa comes and and starts you know shattering windows to to sh- chain businesses and people are like oh this is violence this is terrible but yep. meanwhile they won't give a shit about why they were protesting right that an unarmed black person was shot so there's a bunch of people out in the streets being upset about it and they're like oh this is violence they're out there yelling or um yeah it's less about the people you know it seems like they don't really care about the people or the reason it it, it's like keeping everyone in their preordained position right like they can't have anything 
like rocking the boat or, or rocking the train, I guess, in this case, and like changing the order of anything. So they have to keep things very tight. And this is like how everything's going to be. And you can't do anything to get out of that. And there's clearly just a disproportionate response that uh, it reminds me of Charlottesville, too. Right. You had the Proud Boys and the alt-right coming out and then you had the anti-protesters who were there. And when Heather Heyer was killed by a Nazi with his car, Trump just said, listen, there's bad people on both sides. Like these are both the same thing. People yelling and people hitting people with their cars are both the same thing. Yeah, it, it's, it's just such a such a crazy viewpoint. And I mean, that's that's clearly what's going on here in the film. It's wild how this film was made in what, like 2013? And yet it still applies to things that would happen years later. But you know what? I think these things have been happening. You know, I had read that uh, Bong Joon-ho wanted to set the movie in 2014 as well because climate change was happening now. And he wanted people to realize this isn't the future, you know, that this is going to happen. It's already happening. And this is where we're going to wind up, more or less, you know, in a way, if we don't prevent it. And I think, you know, he wanted this movie to be very topical um, for many years to come and, and when he made it. And he definitely succeeded in doing that. Absolutely. I think I think you, you watch this back then, you watch it now, probably years from now, it'll, it'll still hold up. And I think it's um, both inspiring and defeating to watch. It, re- it really is. Another thing that he probably couldn't have predicted but is happening now is that oil uh, barrels have just dropped into negative prices. Did you see that? I did, yeah. Which, which is wild. Uh, but they happen to use oil drums in the movie too. Yeah, they do. They use them to make, uh, I want to say it's a battering ram, but it's actually made just to hold open the gates so they could get further up in the, in the trains. In yeah, the basically train they, they, lock, they lock all the people in the back by different doors, and each section of the train has different people in it, different purposes, and you have to have like a master key. So when they do this revolt, they use those to hold the doors open uh, so that Curtis can get as far up as he can and, and try to get them you know, to the front of the train. Oh, which was so awesome this moment too. Like this, oh man, if, if this doesn't just get your blood flowing, I don't know what does, right? Oh, it's 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 great. And I mean, they, they've done rebellions before. I right? did mention in the film, like they they've tried to rebel and it never works out. But Curtis says this time we're taking the engine, like we're going to the front. That's how we win this. So he's like, we're we're not stopping until we get all the way up there. And so they have this awesome moment. It's like so tense where everyone has to line up basically in waves and the the guards come and count them. And just before this, Curtis theorizes that the guards don't have any bullets because they use them in all their previous uh, uprisings. They use it to, to counter those revolts. So now they have nothing. And it's a chance to take. Uh, they're not really sure. And, um, and so like they're... They're counting all these people and and sitting down as each one goes by. And like basically they're about to find out that there's this huge uh, battering ram that's meant to keep the doors open. And so Curtis just takes this chance and goes right up to the guard, puts the gun to his head. He pulls the trigger and it just clicks. Nothing happens. And Edgar's like, they have no bullets. Oh, my God. That's epic. Yeah. And it's like that moment where Curtis proves again, like why he's the leader. You know, he's the first one up there. He's willing to put the gun to his head and pull the trigger, you know, and I think everyone seeing that is so inspired. Like, this is the moment. Like, this is where we take back our life. Yeah. And I think because Curtis kind of sees the future, too, that like, 
you shouldn't believe in a person. You should believe in the movement. Because yeah. even if Curtis nope. did get his brains blown out, then he trusted that the movement would still survive. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that, that's that's so important to to the world we live in right now. You know, uh, you look at Bernie Sanders, right? For example, like so many people, myself included, really, really put themselves out there for him, believing that he was going to be the one to get us over the finish line, so to speak, and, and like really bring socialism um, to the United States in a way that we need it, you know, uh, whether it's healthcare for all and all those things. And uh, he was unfortunately defeated um, by the DNC and he kind of gave in, you know, he's endorsed Joe Biden and the movement in a lot of ways feels dead because we relied on one man where I think we need to find a way to, to not rely on one leader and just keep pushing forward. And we will find a lot of moments in this film where there are Bernie comparisons to be made, too. Absolutely, yeah. Now, they end up finding this guy named uh, Min Su, and he designed the gates in the train? Is that what he was there for? I think so. Yeah, he was in the, he was in the prison section. So they, they needed to get to the prison section and break him out. So when they do, they decide that they're going to use him to open the gates in the train and make their way forward. Now, he is... Uh, he, this this moment is interesting because he ends up smoking a cigarette, which are believed to be extinct, and it comes back later. This little boy, his name is Chan, he takes the matches from this guy, and and Curtis is just kind of like, he's like, hey, get out of here. Like, you shouldn't be up here, and that's yep. it. Now, I'm not sure if this is part of the plan. We'll find out later why it might have been, uh, but it seems like he's just like, all right, like, get out of here, you know, go be safe or whatever. And we do find another young person later on who, she's not as young as Chan. She's like, I think, 17 years old. Yeah, I mean, she's is, the age one Curtis got there, right? She's the same age he was. Exactly. Uh, her name is Yona, and Minsu is kind of the person who's looking after her. And Curtis takes note that she seems to be able to see what's going on through the gates before the gates open. Yeah, I think he even asked her if she's clairvoyant at one point, which you yes, know, she doesn't yes. know what that means. But yeah, she always seems to know what's on the other side. And I think uh, Curtis shows uh, real great decision-making here when he decides to trust her, even though he can't see what's on the other side. He trusts that somebody who's younger than him can. He doesn't deny what she can do. He's able to put that skill to good use. Exactly. Yeah, you know, he, he, he's not going to say, you know what, I know better. Get out of the way. No, he's going he's gonna to utilize that as part of the movement. And we'll see it in this movie uh, at that moment, but also later on, the same thing we've seen in The Platform and in Parasite, that it really does uh, kind of come to the younger generation. They're the ones that we have to trust and believe in to, to help really affect change. Yeah, exactly. And with her skill and with Min Su's skill, they're able to make their way up to the car where they make the food for... Uh, the tail enders. Now we haven't spoken about the food that the tail enders eat up until now. What did what did they what do they eat to maintain their sustenance? Uh, so what they think it is, or it's basically these black slabs, right? It's almost like a like a gelatin looking yeah. thing, like a yeah. bar, right? So that's all they get. They get these really gross looking bars, and they they eat them. They chow them down. They get to where the food's being made, um, and Curtis looks into the machine and he sees. I think it's cockroaches, right? They're yes. grinding up cockroaches and putting them into these bars. So that's the protein of the future, right? That's what they're eating. Um, and he's so disgusted. He's like, you know, you know, we've been eating this shit. He doesn't want anyone else to know, you know, because he's like, oh, man, they're going to be, you know, it's so disgusting. This is horrible. This is what they've been feeding us. And they, they know at the front they have steak. 
they have all kinds of food. You know, they mentioned that earlier in the film, like, oh man, I wish I could have a steak. I wish I could eat something really good. Because in the front of the train, they get all the good food. But in the back, they're eating cockroaches. And what a, like, heart-wrenching moment that is, too. Because when Curtis looks in, it's him and it's the guy who has been drawing all of the history of the train. Yeah. Once yep, again, yeah, he, artist. Yeah. And, and what does he ask him? He asks him not to draw it, right? He tells him, please don't don't draw this. Do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea? Uh, you know, it's hard to tell. There's, there's an idea that you have to be honest with everyone all the time. Maybe. Maybe it's the best thing. But at the same time, I know he's afraid of defeating defeating the people. You know, what if they lose? What if they don't make it through this? And that's what gets back to the people still in the back of the train. You know, will they want to eat that anymore? And, you know, we'll find out later. Curtis has seen the worst that can happen. And, you know, as bad as this is, it was worse at one point. Oh, that, that, that's that's so true. Now, I, I didn't really uh, come to a conclusion either. Like, is it better to not know? Um, I think that my interpretation of this moment might help your argument that Curtis is not a hero. Because this kind of reminds me of the revisionist history that we see, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the victors write, write history. And I think it's because people don't know exactly what happened in the past. That's why they're so, so sh- vehement about getting back to it, right? You see so many people who are like, oh, well, you know, let's just go back to the good old days. Let's make America great again where, you know, uh, we were able to say whatever we want and do whatever we wanted. And I think it's because people don't remember that, like, that there was segregation. The Little Rock Nine was having acid thrown in their faces when they yeah. were trying to integrate schools. Uh, there, people aren't made aware of what really happened to the indigenous tribes in America to the point that now they're upset that Lando Lakes is removing uh, the the native lady from their logo. Listen, they say ignorance is bliss, right? And I mean, on a, on a personal note, if I look back at myself 10 years ago, um, I think I was a happier person. But someone who was not educated at all in the world and didn't really understand how the government works, how history worked, you know, anything really, uh, I feel like I, I know a lot more now. But it, it can be it can be kind of depressing, you know, and I think people don't want that. They just want they just want to be happy and believe everything can be OK. I mean, at least you have an excuse. There are people still to this day who are like, oh, like, you know, let's. Let's bring back everything from the Civil War because what a time that was when the South rose up and all this other stuff. It's like, motherfucker, how many Americans died in that war? Yeah, I mean, really, it's all about, you know, putting America first, right? Uh, You know, they worship the government. But they were rebels, man. They were freaking rebels. They were. They didn't. They didn't want to listen to the to the president, to the laws of the world, right? So they decided they were going to they were going to break away and do their own thing. You know, which we have a lot of selective people who who like to think the same, right? That they're like, oh, well, you know, we're not listening to what the government tells us. Uh, you know, let's let's not stay indoors. Uh, let's 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 protest uh, all the lockdown orders. But they're not protesting Trump's handling of the situation. They're protesting their local governors who are trying to keep them safe. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the crazy thing. It's not that protest isn't okay. You know, it's not that you should listen to everything your government does. I mean, and We're it, you a know, country built on protest. We are. It's just choosing what you're going to protest. And you see, like, Occupy Wall Street was shut down so quickly, you know? And then you see something like this where people are out in the street with this virus and they're protesting. 
and no, there's no consequences, right? They're just they're just allowed to do it. And I mean, if you can't tell that you know <laughs> what's right and wrong here just from that alone, I I, I don't know what you know what you can what you can tell is right and wrong. The way I looked at it was that if you are not aware of how bad things have been, you're more likely to let it get that bad again. Yeah, definitely. And and I like you're absolutely right. If the you know, knowing that you've been eating cockroach gelatin bars might defeat them, but I think also if they knew, they would be like these sons of bitches at the front of the train have been doing this to us while they eat steak. Like, let's get them. Like, I think it might be a rallying cry. It might be what catalyzes them to 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 be like, all right, we're not failing this protest. It could yeah, go either it, way. It you might, never really it might know. be. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, Curtis makes a lot of good choices, um, and that may be one of the ones that that isn't so good. But you know, it's the one that he makes. Now, his next choice leads them to uh, the train where I call them the Axemen. <laughs> the Axemen. There are a bunch of soldiers there who all they have are axes because we've seen by this point that uh, the guards don't actually have bullets. Now, their costume choice I found very interesting. And um, we see that the masks that are covering their faces only have their noses and mouths showing. Which is yeah. funny because we're kind of in the opposite place right now. <laughs> yeah, we are. That's the one thing we can't show. Uh, but they're not even showing their eyes. It's like a ski mask with the eyes covered. And to me, I, I felt like that was because they're blindly following orders. Yeah, very, that could very well be it. Yep. They, I mean, I don't think they really understand why they're doing it. They're just being told to do it, so they're going to. Because they're putting themselves in the, in the front line too, right? Like, they, like they're going to be fighting. Yes, they have axes, but... Uh, you know, the people from the back are going to fight back, too. They have weapons as well. And it's going to be, you know, a bloodbath from both sides. And we see who's really suffering. It is the people who are fighting. Meanwhile, like the leaders who are there, Tilda Swinton's character, Mason, and and uh, one of the generals, like they're fine with pushing other people to do their fighting for them, pushing them to the death. But they don't want to die themselves. Yeah, exactly. They're just, hey, go ahead, go do this. Take care of this for us. And uh, Yona, right, she actually tries to warn them that she knows it's on the other side. So she does hear this coming. She hears them on the other side and tries to tell them not to open the gate. But it's too late, and they're they're face-to-face with them. And I'm also wondering if this is reminiscent of where we are in our current uh, state in the country as well. Because we do have people who, you know, they're stockpiling arms and getting ready to fight against a tyrannical government. Um, but these are the same people who are like, oh, well, I'm pro-police, I'm pro-troops. Meanwhile, if anything ever did happen, they would have to fight the police and fight the troops as well. Yeah, it's true. Who, who, who totally out-arm, out-arm them. I don't know if they outnumber them. I, I always wondered if the people who are meant to quell our protests and keep us in order, I always wondered if they realize where they are in the scheme of all things. That, you know, let's say a cop who is at a protest uh, standing the line between those in power and and those who are revolting, I wonder if he or she would ever see that they have more in common with those who are revolting than those they're protecting. It's an interesting, it's an interesting idea because I feel like, in a way, like the police are like a gang, right? And like 
when you're when you're put into the police, like you become a police officer, you're told certain things, right? Like like blue lives matter, and, and I feel like maybe they did feel that way at one time, but you get so caught up in it with your, your brothers in blue, so to speak, that you don't see it that way anymore. You see everyone else as the enemy. Like I, I don't know, I'm not a police officer, so I, I can't you know speak for that, but it, it certainly seems that way. Well, yeah, but we you know we also have seen the blue wall of silence is a very real thing that. You know, in, in no other profession are you made to defend the people who are bad at their jobs except for being a police officer. Yeah, that's very true. Let's say when I was doing stand-up comedy, right? If if Louis C.K. was found, uh, you know, to be a freaking creep or even more, ex- uh, e- even more extreme than that, Bill Cosby, who was found to be a rapist, I would not get up there and defend Bill Cosby just because I wouldn't say comedians lives matter. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just insane. Or, you know, you working in grocery, if one of your employees, you know, accidentally murders a customer, it's not like they would be all like, all right, we all stand behind this guy who murdered someone uh, while looking at cantaloupes. Um, or <laughs> while, while I was an admissions counselor, you know, I, it's, it's just like, well, I if think somebody does because... a bad job, you don't want them. If I were a cop, I'd think, no, get that person off the fucking force and stop having them give me a bad name. I'm I a think good it's, cop. It's because the police, they feel like their lives are on the line, right? Like they're out there in the streets and there are bad people out there, you know? Like there, there yes. could be somebody with a gun who wants to kill a cop, you know, a, a gang member, whatever it is. And they feel like their lives are on the line. Sometimes maybe they make the wrong choice, but they're under a lot of pressure. Or maybe there's not enough of them. Maybe they're afraid of losing too many, too many fellow police officers. You know, how are they going to, how are they going to deal with that stress? I think that's where that comes from. And I think it's a lack of training. I mean, I think they're, they're not properly trained to be in these possible life or death situations, you know? And, you know, I've, I've heard, um, in the military and in war zones have more restraint than a lot of police officers, you know? And it, it, it makes you wonder, you know, how are we, are we failing them? You know, is this country failing its own police officers to put them in a position so that they can fail us? I, 100%. 100%. I, I believe so. I mean, I'm trying to get, uh, I don't want to say his name just now. He might want it disguised if I ever get him on a future episode, but our mutual friend who's now a cop, you know, I would love to get him on an episode because after he came out of the academy, he asked me to show him some martial arts moves. And I'm like, bro, like you just went through you know, he was like, yeah, but it was only six months of training. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> he didn't feel only prepared. six months of training. Like, OK, you know, maybe you could have the junior police officers give them six months of training. Don't give them a gun. <laughs> you know, yeah, but, I mean, it just seems so, so unfair to them to put them in those positions. Like, what do you think of Philando Castile, uh, which happened in 2016? He was a guy who was pulled over by a cop, followed all the rules, did all the right things and was still killed by a cop. And when you see his girlfriend's video of the whole thing, the cop is freaking out just as much as the girlfriend is. Yeah. Like, I it's, actually, it's really sad. Yeah. He's like, oh, my God. You know, he didn't do the right thing. Like, he was freaking out because he was scared, too. And you wonder how many how many accidents happen because of that. You know, <laughs> like maybe maybe these police officers aren't aren't always a, a bad person. You know, you said, you know, if you do something bad, at your job, maybe they're not a bad person, but they made a mistake. And it's because of the lack of training. I mean, the only difference is, okay, if somebody makes that mistake, you can admit to it. You can, 
you can suspend them, you can give them therapy, you like there's so many other things you can do, but you don't have to come out and say, well, the guy he killed was listening to hip hop music, so was it really a mistake? Like, don't double down. Yeah, there and, still has to be consequences, yeah. whether it was an accident or not, right? Absolutely. If I, if I accidentally kill somebody while I'm cleaning my gun, I'm still going to get some sort of prison sentence, right? You know, whether it was an accident or not. So you, there has to be consequences, um, especially for someone in power like that. Yeah, you have to hold people to a certain standard, like we do in every other profession. That was a bit of a digression. Uh, we get to this next point where they're still fighting the Axemen. It's a bloodbath right now. People are getting slaughtered, chopped up and everything. And they all stop to celebrate New Year's because yeah. they made their annual revolution around the world. Yeah, I mean, they, they've been, I think they've already started fighting. There's people bleeding to death yes. on the floor. And they're all like, oh, wait, hold on, guys. Like, Happy New Year. And there's like, I think there's an axe guy with like blood coming out of his shirt. And he's like cheering with his axe. And he's and it's smiling, like, yeah. It's so bizarre. It is, and it goes to show that even if you're, whether you're a tail ender or whether you're, you know, someone who's up front being made to slaughter the tail enders with an axe, you're still on the same train. Like, you can find unity. If you can find unity in this 10 seconds of celebrating New Year's, you can find unity other times. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and then we also see one of the generals, he ends up uh, having the choice whether to surrender or die. He yells out to surrender, but... His superior, Tilda Swinton, she's like, nope, don't surrender, and lets him die. Yeah, and then like, when it, even he thinks, you know, that he's somebody special, and he's not. Yeah, she just wastes his life. But then when it comes to her, she chooses to surrender so that way she can live. Absolutely, yeah. She, she's, she's not going to die for this. Yeah, and I mean, that's, you know, we don't really have to go into that because that's just what happens, you know, in, in real life. It's pretty obvious. The people in power are fine with sending lives to the slaughter. Uh, whether it be through war or whether it be right now in quarantine. Yeah. You know, they, they you, put the, you, the economy first and they don't care about you. Yeah. You and your uh, fellow grocery workers are, they say, on the front lines trying to make you guys. You're not soldiers. You're people who have to work because you will go broke and starve to death if you don't work. Yeah. I think uh, it's it's a really weird position to be in, you know, where people think we're like, you know, we know what we're doing. We know how to handle the situation, but we're figuring it out every day. I mean, this is not anything I think anyone I work with has ever expected to be put into this this position where, you know, people are relying on us for, for food so they don't starve to death during a, a pandemic, you know, and we're, we're all scared and, and stressed. And, you know, we've got people calling, calls on the phone and, and, and screaming at us and trying to figure it out. And it's, you know, we're not heroes. We're not soldiers. We're just, we're just working. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that, that whole terminology pisses me off, too. Thank the heroes on the front lines. And it's like, like, don't get me wrong. If you are someone who works in grocery, someone who works in the medical field, or some sort of first responder, then yes, you have to be on the front lines. And even to an extent, gas station workers, because all you people need to find ways to get to work. Yeah. But like that, like really, that's it. Anybody else, like the people working at Taco Bell, as great full as I was for them on uh, 420 yesterday, um, you know, they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't have to be there. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Like, my girlfriend works at a bakery, and they're they're considered essential. And, you know, we're grateful for it. She's getting paid. But is a bakery really essential? You know, like, can you not live without it? Uh, You know, it it seems seems like a weird weird thing to, to say. It does. We're totally fine with 
expending certain lives. And this woman who was fine with saving her own life, she tells everyone that they should be thankful for theirs. Like, even though their lives are bullshit, uh, that they should just be thankful for, for having whatever they have, no matter how little they have. Which, you know, I would believe if everybody had the same amount. But everybody doesn't. Uh, you know, we've seen that there are certain people who are finally starting to donate to these efforts. Uh, you know, but if a billionaire donates 1% of their wealth to help feed the hungry, like, there's so many people who are like, oh, we should be thankful that they donated anything because they don't have to donate it. They're not required to donate anything. They can continue hoarding all of their wealth. And we're absolutely fine with that. But how much morality does a person really have if they're hoarding wealth while others starve normally? Well, the question is, how did they get there in the first place? You know, like what what did they have to do to get into that pos- position of wealth? You know, and uh, I won't talk about it now, but when we get towards the end of the film, we kind of figure out like how how this train wound up becoming as successful as it was and how the people at the front are able to survive off off of this. Um, and a lot of it is off the backs of the poor, you know, and it's the same with like uh, Amazon, you know, and, and, and the way they, they use their workers and they, they take advantage of them to make more money. And I feel like that just that's how they get into that position in the first place. So, yeah, maybe they do owe us to make those contributions. You know, it's the least they can do. They absolutely do. I mean, I just couldn't imagine having billions of dollars. I mean, I'm the person that if I get $500, I'm like, yo, I'm spending $100 so, you know, me and my friends can have food tonight. I'll treat. Like, that you can be aware of so much suffering in the world and then choose to not do a little something to help it. That's all. That's why you'll never be a billionaire. I don't have what it takes. That's absolutely true. Uh, we have this awesome moment with um, Gilliam, who we didn't really go into him yet, but Gilliam is this older man who's kind of Curtis's mentor. I believe he's led revolt before, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's been the, he's been the de facto leader of the the back of the train for for the last what is it, eighteen years? I think, I think so. And Almost Curtis 18? is kind of Curtis is kind of enacting his will, basically. Yeah, I mean, like, Gilliam's very, very old now. You know, he, he's missing a foot, he's missing a hand, um, he's weak. And by that point, we're made to assume that he's missing feet and uh, hands because he fought against the power and they froze his stuff just like they did to that other guy. That's the punishment you assume he got for, for being the leader of this group. And, you know, he's the one that has kind of inspired Curtis to take up as his, uh, his protege, more or less. Yeah, and Curtis just feels that he's not worthy at this point. He says, how can I lead if I have two good arms? Because, you know, he hasn't sacrificed as much as Gilliam has. How are people going to follow someone who hasn't sacrificed? Exactly. You know, he feels like he's just not, he's not the guy. But Gilliam says, come on, you know, you know, you're the leader now. You know, and he says, oh, it's better to have two arms. He does say that. Uh, and it, it is kind of a good mentality to have, in my opinion. I am... So much more likely to vote for AOC than I am for somebody who has never lived a common life and and worked among the people. You know, somebody who's never really known what it was like to be one of us. Well, this kind of reminds me almost of like Bernie Sanders and maybe AOC or or someone who's going to come later on. You know, Gilliam's kind of like definitely the the Bernie. Yeah, yeah, he's Bernie. You know, he's the one who's inspired this generation of people. You know, he's he's older, but at the same time, like he understands the struggle. And he's pushing the the movement, you know, but 
relying on him and him alone will never complete it. So you need someone from the younger generation uh, to, to come and, and, and help finish this fight and help them move it forward. Who we're led to believe at this point is Curtis. We'll see how we feel about it once we make it to the end of the film. Yeah, definitely. And when they get to the water supply, uh, Curtis tells this woman from the front of the train that they've won, right? That they, they have the water, they can, they can shut it off. Uh, they're they're gonna have to they're gonna have to succeed to them that that the tailenders have won. They're gonna um, kind of the, hold it for ransom after. They yeah, the okay. exactly. And and the woman says to him, she's like Curtis, you know, are are you you're so silly? Like water doesn't come from the back. It doesn't come from the tail. It comes from the front through the mouth. She's like the front of the train converts the snow and ice into water. She's like you'd only be hurting yourself. You'd be shutting off water to yourself. You wouldn't be holding ransom anyone at the front. And that's when Curtis decides, all right, well, if we're not taking the water, then we're taking the engine. Yep, we're just going to keep going forward until we get to the very end and we confront Wolford, who is the one who created the train. We're going to get to the front. We're going we're gonna to take him down. And what a good idea that is, because we've, we've also seen a lot of commentators on on social unrest and protests and everything, and they're like, well, you know... Nobody wants true revolution. We've also seen Biden say that. I mentioned it in the last episode. Nobody wants true revolution. You just want to make little, small pieces of progress, which is just insane to me that people are fine with just getting a little bit. Yeah. Like, give a little bit just to make a little bit of change, you know? And you've seen people also, right? Like, um, when when NFL players were kneeling to protest the treatment of black people in this country, I've seen so many people on Facebook who are like, like, Oh, aren't they happy enough? You know, they can vote, they can play in the NFL, they can do this, like, you know, stuff that even just what 50, 60 years ago, like might've not been legal 70 years ago. But it's not even about them. You know, like Colin Kaepernick. Well, I don't think he was protesting his life. He wasn't saying I had a horrible life. You know, he had great parents. He had a great career. He was doing it for the people who didn't have that platform, who couldn't, who couldn't stand up for themselves. You know, like what Captain America said. You know, I, 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 I stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves, and that's what he was doing. And people with that movement are trying to use their power to send the message. And they, there's this idea that if that if they do that, um, you know, that it's a mistake. They shouldn't do that. And I feel like that's what the people at the top want us to feel. You know, we don't want to be inspired by those messages. We want to shut them down right away. And I think it's precisely where we're at now as well, just like you said, because we're made to believe that, oh, if we get a little something, we should be happy. Oh, a little bit of of leeway for reproductive rights. And it's like, no, man, like these are just temporary fixes. Things need to be changed for real. Otherwise, the same problems persist. Yeah, we need we need we need real change. Now, as they continue moving forward, they also get to the school which is an area only for the front enders. The, the tail enders don't even get to have good food or food at all, let alone uh, being able to learn in school. Although I wouldn't really call this an education. It seems to be more of indoctrination, right? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're showing them videos of how amazing Wilford was and, and, you know, how he, you know, he's basically like worship him and the engine like they're gods, right? And like that's, that's kind of how they, they treat this education to, to teach them these things. And that's where we are too, right? How many people are like, oh, well, you know, we should just worship uh, millionaires and, you know, not question the people in authority. Yeah, they're, you know, let's, let's look up to them. They're, they're the ones in charge. They have the power. They're, they're our saviors. 
And they also had this concept of what happens if the train stops. We all freeze and die. If we go outside, we all freeze and die. Like all the children and the people who are on this train too, all the adults are just indoctrinated to believe that there's no way you can survive outside of this current system. The system may be bad, but at least you're alive. If yeah, anything it's the only changes, choice you have. Yes, which is where we're made to believe right now, right? Like capitalism has shown its pitfalls time and time again. And yet, listen, it's it's still better than the alternative, which is we Socialism, don't know. Communism, any other yeah. system doesn't work, they'll tell you. It does not work. Uh, I think it's at this point, too, that they, they find out about the seven, right? The seven who had tried to rebel and uh, was it the seven? Yes, I was the seven. Although I didn't count seven when they showed it in the movie, but yeah, it looked like five. But. Yeah, it did. But I'm pretty sure it was. Seven. Well, maybe I mean maybe that's something they cut out, or maybe it was in the comic book. I don't know, but maybe two people survived. Like, yeah, or maybe they didn't even make it outside. That's a that's a possibility too. But yeah, we find out about the seven, and who were they again? Uh, so basically, they were people who felt you could survive outside. I think it was. Um, uh, I don't remember how many years after, maybe seven years, eight years, something like that. Uh, and they decided they were going to go outside and prove that you could live out there. So they kind of started the rebellion. Um, and I think the the leader of them was um, an Inuit woman, right? She understood the snow and the ice supposedly very well and really believed they could go out there. So they they made this this attempt to get off the train, which they did. They, I think they jumped off the moving train, they claimed, right? They couldn't stop it, but they were able to get outside. They started climbing the hill and they froze. And, you know, whenever they pass this certain point over the year, they look outside and they look at, at the people frozen and they say, look, that's how far they got. No one can make it outside there. And what a comparison to to uh, socialist critiques right now, right? Um, I mean, we covered it in the last episode, The Platform, but we still see similar comparisons now. Oh, well, this country, it didn't work out, so don't do it. This country, it didn't work out, so don't do it. Like, that's that's just what we keep getting hammered into our heads, that capitalism is the only way anything else, whether it's socialism, communism, an ism that hasn't even been invented yet, will not work. We just got to stay with this. Yeah. Yep. It's your only option, your only choice. Now, tell me about this uh, comparison between uh, Wilford and and uh, powerful billionaires like Bezos. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I feel as you, as you watch this video that they're playing for the children, um, telling you about Wilford's life, right? They tell you, he was, uh, you know, very. Uh, he he loved trains as a kid, right? He's obsessed with trains. He he wanted to build one, a luxury train that was going to go around the whole world, it was going to connect every country, and it would travel around the world over a year um, and be this uniting force. And everybody scoffed at him and thought it would never happen. Uh, oh yeah, that's he, an insane idea. It's this. Yeah, like it would never yeah. work. And what did he do? He proved them wrong, right? He like built this really uh, big company. He made a ton of money. He built the train. Um, and now at the end of the world, who is everyone relying on him, him and his train, just like Jeff Bezos, right? Like he had this idea for Amazon and supposedly people really didn't think it would work. They looked down on him they made fun of him for it. And what did he do? He succeeded, right? He built, he built his empire. He built the Amazon brand. And, um, you know, here we are during this pandemic when people are being, um, discouraged from going out and asked to stay at home. And who are we relying on? Jeff Bezos and Amazon. I mean, they're making more money than ever. They're the ones coming to your house and delivering uh, everything from food to toilet paper to video games, whatever it might be that you need to get through your day, we're relying on them. So to me, like Wolford and Jeff Bezos are very, very, very similar. 
I love that comparison. It's not one I would have made, so I'm really glad that you did. Uh, it also seems kind of like a, a Trump comparison to me, uh, except um, Bezos has had su- a successful business while Trump has had none. Um, we do see that there are still people who just eat up his whole narrative that, you know, I built all these great businesses and and I'm a real estate mogul, despite all of the all of these businesses failing and and him screwing over the the working man and stuff like that. There are still people who are the working people who still eat that narrative up, just like these children in the in the uh, school car. They have no choice but to, to eat it up because that's all they know. They're just like this guy with totally wild ideas is actually the victim of sane thinking people. And we have to back him because he sees what's really going on, despite the fact that a giant train that's going to uh, keep running and protect the rest of humanity is really an unprecedented, but also completely bonkers idea. Yeah. And like you said, they're indoctrinating these children. I mean, like, look, look at us right in school. I'm not saying I'm anti Pledge of Allegiance, but they make kids do it, right? Like when you're in school, you have to do the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, my girlfriend's nephew was being homeschooled and they're asking them to do the Pledge of Allegiance every day at home. Like you have to do this, you know, and you're, you're taught what, you know, how great America is and how the, the system works. And like you don't get a true accurate portrayal of, of our government or our country's history. And it, it is a real shame because it does lead to this false patriotism. Um, you know, that you pledge allegiance to a country that you don't even know what their values really are at that point. And uh, and I, I used to be that person, too, who was like, listen, there's the greatest country in the world, blah, blah, blah. You know, I can still criticize the government without getting my head chopped off. That's great. Uh, you know, we'll see how long that lasts for. But, you know, now there's this idea that if you do criticize America, that you are anti-America, which is just not the case. I might have said it in an earlier episode, I don't remember, but my outlook on it is this. If you have a child and you love that child, when they make a mistake, you correct it and ask them to do better because you love them and you want them to be their best selves. And it's the same thing with our country. If your country makes a mistake, you don't just go, oh, well, that's America. Love it or leave it. It is what it is. You go, no, do better. Do the right thing. You're the best country in the whole goddamn world. You better live up to that and and take care of your people. Yeah, why why accept anything less than than the best we can be? Yeah, and that's why, uh, you know, I don't believe in burning the flag. I mean, I'm not against it, but um, but you know, I do believe in holding the flag upside down. That's the anti-flag logo. Upon yeah punk band, uh, progressive punk band, the idea is that your country is in distress. That's why you hold that flag upside down. It's a, it's a you know, it's a means to ask for help to bring attention to it. So I, I think it's important to note, you know, that they've gotten pretty far at this point to get to the school. Um, and in order to do that, Curtis had to make a really, really difficult choice, right? Like oh, when they were, yeah. they, were, they were fighting these guys with the axes, there was a point where they hit a tunnel and it was pitch black. Um, the enemy had night vision goggles and they were just slaughtering the people in the back. So, you know, Curtis calls for Chan, who you mentioned earlier, um, to, they needed the, the light, right? They needed, they needed fire. So and he Chan had that, stole the matches. Yes, he stole the matches. So he lights a torch and, and he runs it forward and then he passes it to the man whose arm was smashed earlier in the film. And then they keep passing it forward and all of a sudden the light comes and our, our heroes from the back are able to see again and they start fighting. 
you know? And Curtis, he's like, I have to end this. I have to save my people. So he rushes forward. He's going to, he's going to take down this woman from the front. Um, and while he's doing that, his good friend, Edgar, is, is held captive, right? And, and Edgar has a blade to his throat and he screams, Curtis! And Curtis turns and he's about at the halfway point. He has to choose between going back and saving Edgar or taking out this lady from the front and ending the battle. And he turns around and he puts <sighs> his back to Edgar and he doesn't, he doesn't even look back. He rushes forward. He takes her down. Um, and unfortunately, Edgar is murdered right there. And, and you know, he, he ends the fight though. Curtis, you know, he keeps the movement going. He doesn't stop. And we've seen Curtis at this point. He does make a sacrifice, but once again, it's not his own, really. It's not his own. It's someone else. And thanks so much for bringing this moment back up because I completely glossed over it. But yeah, we see Chan bring up this torch and then comes that theme again, right? That the next generation, they're going to be the ones to save us. They're the ones who can see, the ones who we pass the torch to, and they will be able to bring light to stuff that we're blind to. Yeah. Wow. Accurate. I did it. I said it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so as we move on, we find out exactly how the front-enders are living, right? Yeah. Yeah, we see, we see the life. They have, they have sushi, right? They have an aquarium. I mean, they they have anything you can imagine from from the world before the train that would give them pleasure. They have it here. Now, that being said, um, I didn't give enough credit to Wilford exactly. And it's kind of like how, once again, with the Bezos situation... Um, yeah, maybe he's not doing the most ethical things, you know, with his money right now, with his wealth, uh, or for his workers at all. You can't deny that Amazon's an amazing idea. No, it's you great. I mean, it's, it's, you can't you know, deny it. delivered right to your door. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to go out. I mean, it's, it's so helpful, especially for people who, you know, uh, have disabilities or elderly or yeah. can't leave their home and you can get cat food delivered to your house. You know, it's like yeah. whatever you need. It's an incredible, incredible system. And it doesn't stop there, right? There's Amazon Prime where you can get free shipping, but you also yeah. get Amazon Video. There's original series and movies on Amazon. You get Audible, which is uh, you know allowing you to hear audiobooks and stuff like that. You have Amazon Music, music like the Prime like, Pantry. You get you know food and and things. They've even partnered now with Whole Foods, right? You can get you yes. can get stuff from Whole Foods delivered. You can get a discount at Whole Foods by showing your Amazon Prime membership. And we see that Wilford himself, he may be mad, but he's also a mad genius here. That every car has its own specific ecosystem. Like, this whole aquarium here is a self-sustaining aquarium where they're able to reproduce uh, fish and breed them, and that's how they have their sushi. That's how they have everything. They have a meat car and stuff, too. Like, it may not be fair, but the way that they they still have... Um, the whole train running is really an incredible invention. Yeah, and I think it, it was interesting. Um, they know, you know, that they only have sushi twice a year, right? Yes. And it's because they have to keep everything has to remain. The system has to remain closed. You know, they can't they can't overfish the aquarium. You know, they have to they have to make sure they're maintaining the right amount there. Nothing can be out of order. So that's why they only have sushi twice a year, but they will have it. They'll have it twice a year. It's something to look forward to, but they can't shake that system up. Yes. Now, we also find out that while, you know, we might have thought that there were no more fish to eat from, we also thought that there weren't any more bullets left on the train. And it turns out there are. They've been saving it for the front of the train, you know, if things ever got really bad. And now it comes out. They start slaughtering people with their guns again. 
Well, there's there's this uh, this this great moment because um, we know that someone has been passing messages through the the cockroach bars throughout the film. Yes. And that's how they've been getting information about the rebellion to, to help move it forward. And Someone Gilliam, from up front has been passing messages to the back. Yeah, exactly. And Gilliam keeps telling Curtis, let's wait for another message. Like he, he was trying to stop them from getting this far. He's like, he's like, we should wait. Like we have to wait for the next message. Much like, you know, Bernie Sanders, like we got to fall in line with the Democrats, you know, like let's, let's vote for Biden. Like we can't, we can't go, you know, too far out. We can't, we can't start our own party. We can't do this kind of thing, you know, and, and, and Curtis, is like no, we have to, we have to do it now. We can't wait. We can't just follow this the system that doesn't work anymore. Like we've tried rebellions with this in the past. So they get a message here, um, and I, I forget the exact message, but basically it's relating to the bullets, you know. So like whoever is passing this message knows Curtis has has been getting them and wants him to know he's wrong. Yes, and um, he while they're passing messages through food and everything at this point they're handing out eggs and Curtis pulls out the message and it just it's a red scroll a little red scroll and it says blood on it and that's when pop 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 like people just start getting slaughtered and then I think that's when over the uh, over the security cameras Curtis sees Gilliam over the security cameras and right on camera there he gets his brains blown out yeah, I mean, he sees basically his entire movement getting gunned down, uh, except for a handful of, uh, you know, selective people that are going with him to the end. And, you know, it's this very, it, it could be a defeating moment, right? That could be the moment it's like, hey, we've just lost our our leader in a way. We've lost, you know, our, our people. But, uh, it, you know, they decide they're going to keep moving forward. They're going to keep that movement going to the very end. So at this point, it would be easy for Curtis to let the whole movement go. But Octavia Spencer smacks him out of his stupor, and she's like, listen, you're leading us now. Let's go. Like, let's keep this thing moving. She lost her son earlier, so she's, you know, motivated to get get there. Yeah, her son uh, was taken, taken to the front with, uh, yeah. with another boy. So while they move up to the front, we see that there's a bunch of other stuff that not only are they eating sushi, but they're getting their hair done. They have tailors. They have bars where they can drink at. They have uh, dentists. I mean, they, they have... Anything that anyone in the in a first world you know yeah. country would would want or need. Yeah, they have a spa. They have clubs where people go and dance and get wasted at. It, it's insane. And at one point, when Elder Franco is searching for uh, Minsu and Yona in the spa, uh, he ends up accidentally killing one of the front end passengers. And at that point, a guard steps up. He's like, "Hey, you killed a front end passenger," and I think he kills him too. Yeah, he does. He goes. He didn't see anything. You know, like, like, it doesn't matter. We're going to cover this up. The guards were fine with all of the people in the back of the train being slaughtered. But once somebody who's a front ender, somebody who's deemed more important gets killed, he has this whole problem with it, right? Yeah, he's, he's not okay with it. But this guy, Elder Franco, he, he's, he doesn't care. You know, he, he's out for blood. He's, he's, he's kind of crazed. You know, he just he wants to kill Curtis and his group so badly. Now, speaking of people being okay with certain lives being lost, the people in front don't mind the people in back dying, but they definitely don't want themselves to get killed. It seems to be where we're at right now, too, right? There are people who are who are pushing for the reopening of the economy, reopening America, despite the fact that lives are going to be lost. And what's worse is they've recognized that lives are going to be lost and they're still okay with it. Yeah, they, they, they're, they're like, listen, we can't put our lives on hold for this. So you have to just suck it up and 
the weak are going to die and we're going to move on and get and get the economy going again. Even though the I weak want. dying just means the poor and old. Yeah, I mean, there's people with signs saying, I, I want a haircut. They want you to die so they can get their haircut. I How mean, much that's... privilege can you have in a single sign? It's unbelievable. Seriously. So what else is unbelievable is uh, Curtis's, I guess I'll call it his origin story. Sure. Uh, we finally get up to the front of the train, the car that holds the engine. Is there anything else you wanted to cover before we talk about the this the engine? Well, you know, I think it's important to note that everyone that has gone on this journey with him has died. They have all died kind of for him in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, they, they've all fought to protect him and help him move forward, and they have all been slaughtered and killed. And it's only him, Minsu, and Minsu's daughter, Yona. And they're the only three that make it to the very end. Um, and it's also interesting that Minsu, all he cares about, he doesn't care about this movement. He just cares about Chrono, right, that drug. He just wants more of that drug. He demands every time they open the gate, they had to give him more. You know, when they're going through the club, he's pocketing them. Like that's all he wants. And they come in. They come in these little cubes, right? These little cubes that they look almost like coal, you know. And uh, and yeah, like you said, they're scratch and sniff. But it, it's just such a weird delivery system for a drug. It is. It's really odd. Uh, you know. And another thing I wanted to bring up now that you 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 brought that up is one part that was cut out of the film is that there's actually a brothel car. Did you know that? I did not know that, no. Yeah, when the train first was created and people were on it, a bunch of women from the tail end were taken to the front to be in the brothel and that they only left enough women in the back so that way they could reproduce. That makes sense, yeah. Because everything has to be controlled, as we'll find out in a few minutes. So tell me this story. As we finally get to the last gate, Curtis and Minsu they share a cigarette, and uh, Minsu's saying, like, listen, I don't want to open the last door. And Curtis is like, listen, you have to open the last door. Here's my story. What does he tell him? Uh, so, well, Minsu gives him the last cigarette on earth, you know, and he takes a puff of it and then he just lets it burn down as he tells the story because the story is so much more important than the cigarette. And he, he tells him that basically when they got on this train, they were, they were shoved into the back, you know, I don't know if he's just like a thousand people, something along those lines, a whole bunch of people shoved into the back and they were given no food and no water. You know, and he says, the horrible thing is they had to start eating each other. They ate the weak. And Curtis has this moment where he breaks down because he says, I know what people taste like. And I know that babies taste the best. That was such a heartbreaking moment. It was so fucked up. So this whole movie, we're looking at Curtis as this hero, you know, and he makes a few choices that are questionable. But overall, you know, he's this heroic leader for the group. And when he says that line, he breaks down. You realize there's a whole lot more to him. You know, he he tells he tells Minsu that he's he's not this hero. You know, there came a point where where they were just slaughtering anyone they could to eat, and there was this baby, and they were going to eat the baby, and somebody else stepped up and said, you know, leave the baby alone and cut their own arm off. And he throws it to them and says, listen, if you if you're so hungry, eat that instead. You know, and Curtis, he's in, he's in tears, and he says, I'm sure you can guess who that man was. You know, it was Gilliam. Gilliam was the one who, who cut off his own arm to save this baby. And that baby was Edgar. And the man with the knife that was going to kill the baby was Curtis. Curtis was going to slaughter a baby to eat it. And he wasn't, he wasn't strong enough to do the right thing. He was more worried about his own, his own health. But he killed Edgar's mother. 
you know, and throughout the film, you had known that Edgar looked up to Curtis. He had, he had viewed him as a hero, as his leader. He wanted to be like, just like him, but he never knew the truth that the man that he looked up to tried to kill him and killed his own mother. It was Gilliam who saved him. Um, and in the end, what happens? Curtis let Edgar die anyway. You know, he, he still didn't save him when he had the choice. Uh, and Curtis, you know, he, he says he tried to do the same thing. He tried to cut off his own arm and he couldn't do it. You know, he has a scar on his arm from where he tried, but he just wasn't strong enough to do what Gilliam could do. And, and that's, that's his, that's his fear and his weakness. And, and that's what he's carried with him. And I feel like that's a big part of why he has pushed so hard here at the end to be this hero because he's trying to make up for his sin. What I think makes it worse is that Curtis says that other people inspired by Gilliam were able to cut off parts of themselves for others to eat. Yeah, he just he he was not strong enough. Which I mean Gilliam doesn't hold it against him either. He's like, "Listen, you have two arms, you're going to need two arms for what you have to do." Yeah, I mean, he's picked him to be his his successor, right? Like, yeah. you know, the movement is in your hands. So, you know, he sees something in Curtis, you know, um, and, and they mentioned that Wilford had heard of him, you know, that he'd heard of Curtis, that he was smart and, uh, you know, charismatic. So, you know, there is something unique about him, but at the same time, he's also been a coward. He's, he's, he's been at his lowest point and I think that's what drives him. Yeah. But you know, really he's, he's just like everybody else. Like he would, he too, he couldn't come up with the idea. To, to chop off his own arm and, and save babies. He just went with, with everybody else, was just trying to survive. And I brought it up in the last episode in the platform. Is it, your, is it your fault that you've made those choices or is it society's fault? Is it the system's fault? I don't have an answer to it, but I just like asking the question. It's a, it's a good question to ask. You know, would I eat a baby to survive? Probably not, you know, but... It's times like that. Certain people, they get desperate and think of whole new ways. Necessity is the mother of invention. But, you know, say. you've never you never get put into a spot where you're so hungry and there's no food. You know, like we don't know. It's, it's hard to know what you'll do when faced with your own demise. Who knows what May 2020 is going to bring? You never know. Yeah. So in response to this, right, Min Su says like, Listen, bro. All right, he doesn't say that, but he's like, uh, he's like, he's like, yes, I want to open the gate. He's like, I don't want to open this gate. I want to open that gate. And he points to a door that's uh, that's in the wall. And he's like, you may view that as a wall. He's like, but I see it as a door out of here. And you find out that the chronol is actually very flammable. It's explosive even, and that he's been collecting all of these drugs not to get high, but he's been putting them together with a fuse to make a bomb to get out of the train. And he's like, listen, that Inuit woman who knows how to survive in the snow, she taught me how to survive in the snow. So I'm taking Yona and we're going to get out of here. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a big moment. It's like we were going to leave the train. You know, what about the seven? They froze to death. You know, they, they didn't make it all those years ago. Um, but Minsu noticed what something that no one else did. You know, every year they passed this this plane that had crashed, and it was covered in snow. And I think all he said, all he could see was the tail at first. But year after year, little by little, he could see more and more of the plane that the snow was melting. And I also, I don't know if you looked into this, but um, according to the director, uh, the Inuit woman was actually Yona's mother. Oh, really? Yeah, it's very subtle. Like that's they don't want awesome. you know. But yeah, I didn't know that. Yep. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. 
so before Minsu and Curtis can fight it out over which gate's going to be opened, Wilford opens his gate and lets Curtis in. Yeah, right. Not before shooting Minsu though. Yes, Minsu is shot by one of Wilford's people, and uh, Curtis comes in, and Wilford basically explains his whole outlook on life that you know he is keeping this train moving for a reason and everyone has a place they need to be in order to keep it moving um you know and he's he's like listen we're all stuck on this train we're all suffering which is kind of like right now right you see people yep. in the one percent we're like listen we're all suffering in this quarantine i'm in my mansion you're in your one bedroom apartment struggling <laughs> trying to make yep. ends meet we're all you know uh, we'll we're all struggling here. yeah and curtis says he goes anyone on this train would trade places with you Wilford goes, would you trade places with me? And he's like, fuck you. Like, yeah. it's it's such a good back it's, and forth they have. So, I mean, Wilford played to perfection by Ed Harris. He just, really? You know, Absolutely. just has that arrogance about him. And he says, you know, you think my place is without its problems? He's like, it's noisy in here. He's comparing a noisy engine to the people in the back eating cockroaches and having eaten each other at one point. Like, it's just such an arrogant way to look at it. But he has this way of speaking, like you said, played to perfection, that just kind of makes you think that, oh, maybe he has a point. Like, yeah, like, he's he just, just so matter of fact, fact like, it, yeah. it makes sense. Like, you, he, he's right. It makes you want to listen to him. And Gilliam had told, had told Curtis, if you find him, cut his tongue out. Because that's what it is, right? Those silver-tongued people who are going to convince us to vote against our best interests, they're the real dangerous ones, aren't they? They are. They really are. They can convince anybody to do it, to fall in line. He says that basically everything that happens on that train is controlled by him. Where the people are, what the people eat, everything needs to stay in perfect uh, uh, synchronization and perfect harmony. He has a whole ecosystem with everything, including the revolutions, the protests. Yeah, it's it's uh, controlled opposition, right? Like the idea that that rebellion is going to happen you know people aren't going to just sit there and accept it so do you let it happen naturally or do you dictate the course of its actions so that's what he chooses to do he he decides how the rebellion is going to happen when it's going to happen uh he's the one sending those messages back and he was the one sending the messages yeah you know in this way he knows the outcome before it happens and it makes the people think all right like we gave it a shot you know this was an organic thing it's something that um, you know, I've heard of in our political system, you know, they'll put people out there who you think are fighting for your interests, but, and they're, they're opposing maybe, you know, Trump or, or Joe Biden, but at the end of the day, they're actually being funded by the same people. And, and whether they win or Joe Biden or Trump wins at the end of the day, they're still going to have the same interests of the people at the top. You'll still be on the train. Yep. Doesn't matter. And, uh, what? What a tragic moment because you find out that he also controls how many people die in these revolts. He'll be like, all right, we need to cut down the tail enders to 74%. Go do that. Yep. It, they, they choose this percentage of how many people are going to die. And it, it's it's just so matter of fact for them. He, he keeps bringing up everyone has their preordained positions, right? Like this is just the way it is. Like it, it's the only way to keep humanity going. And that people should technically be happy with what they get because after the whole eating each other incident in the back uh, of the train, Gilliam was the one who spoke to Wilford and that's how they started getting their protein bars. 
And they were fine yeah, with that yeah. because they were like, oh, well, it's better than us eating each other. It's still terrible, but it's a little bit, it's, it's, it's little 1% better, you know? And Wilford That's just it. keeps pushing Curtis. I mean, he makes a phone call. He tells him to keep calling the people. And he holds the phone out as the machine gun fire and the screams in the background. And Curtis slams his fist on the table and he stands up. And, you know, that woman's got the gun on him. She's, and, he, and Wilford's like, calm down. Like, calm down. Like, you're overreacting. Like, it's just all like, like chill out, man. Like, it, it's not a big deal. Well, yeah, Curtis is very good at gaslighting people, uh, which is when you may be overreacting to something and somebody's telling you that your feelings aren't really valid, whether it's something an abusive parent or an abusive uh, spouse does to you or um, or somebody who's a political commentator. They'll be like, listen, like you're being too emotional. You're being too dramatic. You mean Wilford, aren't right? That Not bad. Curtis. Wilford, yes. Yes, yeah. Yeah, okay. that's what Wilford's doing. And I've and I, I know a lot of people in my real life who are like that, that they're just like like, oh, you know, you can't let yourself be controlled by emotion, man. The numbers say this. So guess what? Climate change actually isn't a big deal. The numbers say this, so guess what? Uh, you know, the flu kills more people. Coronavirus isn't a big deal. COVID nineteen isn't as bad as it seems to be. Uh, you know, but that's like looking at nine eleven and being like, oh, the flu kills more people. Don't worry about it. Like, you know, people are people are very selective, but in a way that that just helps them prove their point. We also find out that Wilford is ready to stop running the train. He wants Curtis to take over for him. Yeah, well, I mean, first he breaks Curtis because what does he tell him? He tells him that the entire time Gilliam has been conversing with him. You know, Gilliam is also that controlled opposition in a way. You know, was he ever really trying to help the people? The I don't know. You know, he makes it seem like he says, not only was he my partner, he was my friend. We would have late night chats. You know, he, he was the one who who we would go back and forth about. You know, we, we picked you together. And at that point, you know, Curtis, what a position to be in, right? He finds out that he is also part of this system and that, you know, maybe the ideas that he believed in this whole time were put there. And maybe they're not really his. Maybe he's just, you know, he's just fighting for Gilliam's dream. Yeah. I mean, I think Wolfer mentions he didn't expect him to get to the end at this point. But at some point, he was going to come and, and get him. That he was going to be uh, his his chosen successor. Not not even Gilliam's, you know. It, it, he is going to be Wolfer's successor to take over the engine. And before he has to make this choice... I want to go back to this idea that all of the protests, all of the revolts have been planned to this point because we're seeing it happen in real life right now. Um, you know, we see that the Michigan Freedom Fund uh, was a co-host of uh, the rally that was held um, was held in Michigan by a bunch of people who showed up with their signs and their Trump flags and their Confederate flags and their guns saying that they want everything to be reopened so they can live their lives again. Um, the Michigan Freedom Fund took $500,000 from the DeVos family. You know, Betsy DeVos yep. uh, appointed uh, to look over education in the country by, by Donald Trump. Uh, and we also see now it's not even subtle, right? Trump is on Twitter encouraging people to protest and for some reason saying that their Second Amendment needs to be saved, which yeah. isn't even part of the argument. Like anyone who would believe that is an idiot. He's saying liberate, liberate yourselves. Yeah, but like it's so ridiculous because he's making decisions that governors are following and then saying fight back against those governors to keep the economy going. It just doesn't make any sense to me how anyone believes this, that somehow public health, life and death has become a right wing versus left wing issue. It, it's crazy, man. It's like literally people's lives we're fighting over. 
And I feel like this moment in the film is just, it, there's so much about it that we can relate to right now. I mean, I think the idea of him giving this, this, um, you know, possibility to Curtis to take over happens to like a lot of politicians, right? Who start out with the right idea. They want to do the right thing. And then they're given this choice, right? It's like, listen, the system doesn't work. If it's chaos, we have to keep them in line for their own health. Like join us, like join up with us. You know, we're going to, we're going to make people, you know, Wolfer keeps saying people will die, you know, like they, they, they cannot live. They'll just go into chaos if they don't have us to, to do this for them. Um, and I think Gilliam and Bernie Sanders are, you can see it even more here. You know, Gilliam seems like maybe the choices he made was because he really felt like he was saving lives. And that's why he joined up with, with Wilford. You know, we don't know how much of it's true because Gilliam's dead. And this is all coming from Wilford. But it certainly seems plausible. Um, and, yeah, you know, and Bernie Sanders like Bernie... joining. Exactly. Yeah, joining sorry. with the DNC, you know, uh, endorsing Biden. Like, it's he believes it's for the greater good. You know, I don't think he does it because he wants to hurt people. But in the end, he's kind of killing the movement that he started. And now while Curtis is considering all this, he sees something that really. Well, like leading leading up to that, I mean, all the people from like the, the front, they start like going crazy, right? Because their drugs are stolen. So they come after uh, Minsu and Yona and they, they start attacking them. And Minsu tells Yona that she has to blow the, the train doors open. And uh, she winds up opening up the front, right? The front to the engine and confronting um, Curtis and Wolford. And she tries to get Curtis to help her. And he puts his hand out because he's he's beginning to think he's going to accept Wilford's offer. He's really considering it. And I think that was such a big moment. It was like, you know, is he this good guy? Has he learned his lesson? And then he puts his hand out to her to like, stay away from me for a second. You know, like maybe maybe this is the right way. Somebody's got to run the train. If it's me, I can make things better. Exactly. You think that. You think you can be a good person in a corrupt system, which, you know, always bring it back to Batman. You either die a hero, you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Like at some point, in order to keep things going, he's going to have to make those choices, right? He's going to have to choose who dies in order to keep the rest of the train running. And maybe things will be a little better the way he runs it. But in the end, you know, he'll end up drone striking... Gaza Strip. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean. So what he does see that finally shakes him out of the apathy is um, y- oh, uh, Yona has to be the one to show him that under one of the floor panels, there's this mechanism that needs to keep moving in order to keep the engine going. And in order for that mechanism to work, there's a child, one of the children who was taking at the beginning of the movie. It's Octavia Spencer's son. Yeah, Timmy. And uh, he's there, um, you know, taking the waste away from from the whatever the engine creates and putting it somewhere else. But he's this little child in this fucking box. <sighs> okay, sorry. Um, he's this little child in this box, head shaved bald, identity stripped from him. And uh, there's this gear, this cog that keeps turning over him. And um, and he's barely looking away from his job. Like, that's all he can do is just keep doing this job until he grows too big for it. And then who knows what happens after that. Yeah. We have not, maybe he's killed, we, you know, to, to keep the secret safe. You know, when Wilford and, says, you know, the engine is, is everlasting. It'll never die. But the parts to it, not so much. And at this moment, this is uh, Curtis's Gilliam moment. Right. 
Yep. Um, well, first he beats the living shit out of uh, out of Wilford, um, which Wilford again he's like, don't be so dramatic, blah blah blah. But this um, is the, so, to Curtis. This is this is the point that separates him, right? Like he, you know, he he already tried to kill a child once, and he he just can't. He can't do this again. He can't ever, you know, live by stepping over children. He needs to make the sacrifice. And he decides to stop this gear that's turning over this child's head so the kid can escape. And the only way to do it is he sticks his arm in in order to lift this kid out. Um, while he's doing it, another kid starts taking a position, like an emergency position, to keep the the engine moving. And he's like, "No, like you know, don't do this." Uh, and he's you know he's able to take little Timmy out, and in doing so, that gear keeps moving through and chops off Curtis's arm. Like he finally has his moment of sacrifice that he's been talking about, um, which is uh, very reminiscent of uh, Mario Savio, who. Yeah. Uh, if you look to our show notes, you'll see that, you know, what, what he represented, but he has this awesome speech. Um, and he says in it, uh, there is a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even tacitly take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. And that is right in this moment, that he literally puts his body on the gears and sacrifices his his own physical well-being to stop this machine because the machine isn't just. He stops the whole train. He's willing to end the world basically right because all of humanity is left on this train and he's willing to end it so that way these children don't suffer basically a system that works unjustly isn't a system that's worth working at all exactly he makes that decision right then and there like it's not worth it it's not worth it you know the bones of our children to to kill them and and work them like this so that we can all live uh, you know we have to end it it's not about sacrificing the future right it's about trusting the future trusting the children which has been the theme throughout all three of these movies it's been a theme throughout all three of these movies and um in trusting the next generation uh we find yona who um Wait, is Minsu still alive at this point? He is, right? He is, yeah. He's still alive. He's been holding off this, like, crowd of people and that uh, Franco the Elder, who's still alive after they killed him, like, 13 times. He's come Franco back. Franco Voorhees, yes. Yeah, Franco Voorhees. He's been holding them all off after being shot in the gut. And he's like, we got to do this now. We got to do this now. So, of course, uh, Yona, she lights the chrono bomb and... Um, and explodes the the front of the train at this point i think it's what minsu little boy timmy um yona and curtis they all exchange a group hug as the train goes off the rails and crashes it's a complete wreck people are dead the train is off the tracks the end of the world is truly here i don't even think it's a group hug i think they're shielding yona and timmy like i I, because they can't get the door to close to the engine to protect them from the explosion so I think Minsu and, and Curtis try to wrap them in their bodies to protect them as best they can. That they're doing the right thing and it's just their last letting sacrifice. the future survive even if they have to die. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly. awesome. I mean, th- but that's the case of, of anyone who's ever made incredible changes, right? You say, we plant seeds 
We plant the seeds of trees that we'll never be able to sit in the shade of. Right? Everything we do should be for the future. Even you and I at this point, we're only 30 years old, but like, you know, can you imagine being a child in elementary school who's in quarantine right now, man? I couldn't even imagine it. Like how, like how heartbreaking is that? It's, it's, it really is. It's horrible. It is. I mean, and hopefully we can get past this and hopefully those kids can be the ones to change the world because, you know, they'll, they'll remember. Listen, I was 10 years old when a leader who didn't believe in science caused this many Americans to die. I was 10 years old when I saw people rightfully working against their own interests. And that's why, you know, I'm changing things now. You know, or I was 10 years old when this happened. Oh, wait, the marauders are coming up overhead. Let's just keep hiding. Um, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and go out later to find supplies. That's also a possibility. It is. Um, Sadly. So, so all in all, after the smoke clears, uh, Yona and little Timmy, they put on their fur coats that they stole from uh, that, that Minsu stole from the partiers in the club, and they make their way out into the snow. And they survive, right? They don't freeze to death. They're able to walk around like it's cold, but the snow is now, you know, at a at a reasonable temperature where you can survive out in it. And they they look up and they see a polar bear. And um, it, it's this moment you also God, realize Minsu had Minsu had seen it earlier. You know, he they were walking through the train. And he had stopped to look out the window and he was mesmerized. And right before Curtis went in to talk to Wilfred, he says, "I looked out the window and I saw," and he kind of laughs and he's like. Never mind. You know, when Curtis goes, oh, that chronology, those hallucinations, like, you know, whatever it is, I'm sure it wasn't real. But it was. You know, he saw life out there. He saw life was, was coming back. And that's uh, really such a beautiful moment uh, because it shows that, yeah, like, life is coming back and that the polar bears were able to survive on their own, too. Yeah, they were. This whole time. They didn't have to be on the train. Nope. And the ironic thing is that right now in our world, polar bears are struggling to survive, right? They are. They really like, are. you know, what a what a great choice uh, by by that film's creators, writers, director, like seriously. Um, and we see that they'll hopefully continue to survive and hopefully be able to, you know, build the world again. It's a, it's a surprisingly hopeful message for such a dark and depressing film. Like, I don't think we got that from the other two films either. We didn't get that from Parasite. We barely got it from the platform. Yeah. I mean, th- this is like. This is it. This is this is where the the young generation who have hopefully learned from the mistakes of the past they they get a chance to to rebuild um, as best they can. You know, realistically, I don't know how many people are still alive. Can they really restart the human population? I don't know, but at least they have a chance uh, yeah. of free will to do it. Well, I think the other thing is too, like who's to say that other people around the world still haven't survived on their own? Yeah, we don't know. We only know what was told to us on this train, right? Like that's yeah. what Wilford told them. And now that we see there is life outside the train, there is life outside this system, uh, you know, this kind of made me view things. If I were to relate it to our current political system, it does seem like Curtis and Gilliam, like they were the Democratic Party and that, you know, they they were trying to be progressive, but within the train. And Min Su, the guy who everyone thought was crazy, Min Su was true progressivism. He He was like, yeah, like we're not on this 
you know, we can live outside of the train. We don't need this system to survive. And it's kind of yeah. like that's where we are now. The DNC has to take a major hit. They have to cut off their arm. They have to make a sacrifice for true progressivism. I mean, they won't. They don't want to. There's an argument for a, a, a what's it called, dem break? You know, like a new, a third party to truly emerge. Like, why are we stuck in a two-party system? And this, is, this has been, you know, a big thing for progressives. Like, we're never going to actually get what we hope for through the Democrats. That's, that's what this has proven to us. You know, we can't actually get them to ever truly go to the left and, uh, you know, try any of these ideas. We're going to have to create a new system. And that's what Minsu does. You know, he says we have to fucking break this train down and go out there and start anew. And his whole plan wasn't even for him to be the one to do it. It was for Yona, his daughter, to survive. Yeah, that was that was it the whole time. That's what he wanted. He wanted her to, to move on and escape this this trap. And there's so many people who believe in the trap. They believe that, you know, guess what? Okay, well, we weren't able to get with Bernie, but let's side with Biden, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, you, you believe in ideas, don't believe in people. That's what real life has taught us. That's what this movie has taught us, right? That's exactly it. You can't rely on one single person. Like, the movement has to be bigger than a person. That's the only way to work. Because if you cut off the head, it dies otherwise. And it's okay to believe in yourself too, right? Like... You know, Yona wasn't the one who was, you know, believing in all the other people like, oh, we believe in Curtis, blah, blah, blah. You know, Yona was the one at the end who's going to have to rebuild the population. And that's where a lot of that, a lot of us are right now. We we got to believe in ourselves. We got to be the ones to make that difference. We can't count on on, you know, phony leaders to do it. We can't count on, you know, Bernie, who just keeps getting kneecapped at every turn. Yeah, every time. Every time we're we're so close to the to the end to real change, and he just he just bows down, you know. He just he can never finish it. We talked a lot about the reading between the lines of this movie. Uh, outside of its metaphors, would you recommend this movie? Yeah, if you listen, if you don't want to delve too deep into it, just a really great sci-fi film. It's really, it really cool. Is. Um, it's great acting. Some like some really really. Interesting stuff they do with this film. I, I highly recommend it. I mean, obviously, uh, Bong Joon-ho is a fantastic director. He's finally being recognized after Parasite. Um, so it's, it's cool to see, you know, what he's been able to do here. I mean, the movie was made on um, a budget of about $40 million. It made $86.8 million roughly at the box office. So it didn't make a ton. You know, it, it was profitable. But, uh, you know, I think not, not enough people really knew about this film or about him as a director. And I think he's finally getting... Uh, recognize which is which is great listen a profit of over 40 million dollars is a recommendation enough so i recommend it as well like you said great action movie great sci-fi flick it's got chris evans in it captain america it's got tilda swinton in her best austin powers costume it's got ed harris it's it's just a really uh really fun film to watch regardless um now, next week, we're going to be going from the vault. I'm going to be releasing a long-awaited Black Panther episode that I did, uh, part one of two. In the meantime, both of us are going to work on a nice little side project, uh, kind of a little sorbet to to clear out all of the heavy stuff that we normally talk about on this podcast. A little bit of comedy, uh, kind of just something ridiculous to have. But we'll tell you more about that later on. We're going to work on it in the meantime. Next week... We're going to have Black Panther. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Ty, thank you so much for being on yet again. It's been really awesome to do this with you, and I'm, I'm hoping we can just keep going forward. Yeah, me too. I mean, I feel like it's great. We've been able to get some 
some awesome stuff off our chest, and I look forward to doing more with you. That's absolutely true. Uh, we It's really just about venting everything, and hopefully we're not the only ones who, who believe this stuff. Now, if you don't believe what we're talking about, don't hesitate to reach out to us, okay? You can uh, email us at politipopcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at politipoppod. You can find us on Instagram at politipoppodcast. You want to find our show notes and sources, you can go to politipoppodcast.wordpress.com. I want to give a special thanks to our listeners and also to Antonia Little for logo design. We're going to be writing out on a song today. It is Prayer of the Refugee by Rise Against. Also, very relevant lyrics. If you want to listen to all of their music, it's very relevant. Rise, Rise Against is, an, is a great band uh, with a lot of great songs. Um, Ty, it has been great having you on once again. Looking forward to working with you next time. Have a good one, all right? Thanks, man. Take care, guys. And remember, listeners, no matter what you're reading, no matter what you're watching, no matter what you're taking in, always remember to keep thinking about it, keep learning, and read between the lines. We are the angry and the desperate, the hungry and the It's like a hallucinogen. Um, they don't really go too much more into it, but like you can like scratch and sniff it almost like a scratch and sniff snicker, I think. A uh, sticker, and you. Hold on. <laughs> Let me do that one again. Saves the calories, yeah. <laughs>is the comic book Korean? I knew it was based on a comic book. I didn't know it was a Korean. Book. I thought it was, but uh, I'll have to look into that. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> Piercer comic book. Um Les Le Transpessinage. It might be Oh, is it French? It's a French graphic novel. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and you're not sure if it's a means of him just wanting to stop the rebe- rebellion or if he really just has a vendetta against Curtis and his Well, they, they did show that his brother was killed earlier. Oh, is that who that guy was wearing the suit? Yeah, like they were really close. Like he was kind of resting his head on his shoulder. Um, according to IMDb, I thought they were a couple. He's Frank. So did I, but he's called Franco the Younger. So I'm assuming. Oh, they're brothers. yeah, they're brothers yeah. then. Definitely. Okay, cool. See, good thing you you looked into it. I got you, dude. I'm just gonna. You're gonna take over the podcast one as long as you keep editing it. Uh, ab- absolutely. Uh, give give us a little bit of numbers real quick on this film. What? The numbers? Or did you want me to cover that? I just said it. Didn't you hear me? Oh, no. I missed it. Sorry.
Jesus. I, I just said the budget and how much you made at the box office. Oh, Jesus Christ. Sorry. I'm a fucking terrible host. <laughs> That's why I'm like, what the fuck are you saying? Yeah, like, all right, now give us the numbers for real, though. <laughs> give us the fake <laughs> I'm like, I don't have any other numbers. <laughs> like, Do you you know got me. That... that was a fake numbers. <laughs> it's got Octavia Spencer and an Austin Powers getup. You know, there's and, and it's, it's got Ed Harris, too. Like, it, it really is just a fun. Who did I say was in a? <laughs> Octavia Spencer. Oh, God. Let me go back. Uh, Tyler and I, Ty and I are working on, Ty and I doesn't sound right. Along with Ty? <laughs> with my co-host Ty. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 